God, we have felt the pull uh, all week long, Lord, from the world around us to look down uh, at our circumstances, at our problems, uh, at our temptations. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to look up at you. Uh, Lord, that you'd use your word, that you'd use these, these verses in, in the book of Daniel to help the eyes of our hearts to look up at you, at your glory, at your majesty. That we know that what our eyes are set upon, Lord, that's what we end up becoming. And so, Lord, would you work powerfully, Lord, over these next few moments. Let your word be working in, in a way that's alive and active. Lord, speak to us, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we uh, wrap up our uh, study in the book of, of Daniel, I wanted to read a quote by Carl Truman, uh, who is a Christian theologian and historian. He uh, wrote a book called a, uh, a Church for Exiles, and he, he wrote this. He says that we live in a time of exile, at least those of us who do hold to traditional Christian beliefs. The Western public square is no longer a place where Christians feel they belong with any degree of comfort. For Christians in the United States, this is particularly disorienting. In Europe, Christianity was pushed to the margins over a couple of centuries. The tide of faith retreated slowly. In America, the process seems to be happening much more rapidly. I think Truman's uh, assessment here explains the cultural shift that's taken place over the last uh, few decades that Christian values are no longer held or even tolerated by the majority, and this shift can be difficult for us to accept and even respond to. That we've always known, theologically at least, that we are exiles. We know 1 Peter 2.11 describes us as exiles. But many of us are starting to experience the reality of being an exile personally uh, in our daily lives whether that's in the workplace or in the schools or in our neighborhoods or even in our families or other relationships, we are starting to feel like the minority that we don't belong in this world. Now, not all of that is bad. I think cultural Christianity is dying, and that's a good thing, that what's becoming more and more a reality is that there's no longer an option for fence-sitting Christianity, where you've got one foot in the world and then one foot with Christ, that they're starting to become a real cost to being a Christian to such a degree that cultural Christianity, comfortable Christianity, incognito Christianity, if you will, is becoming a shrinking island. Now, Daniel knew exactly what that was like. In fact, Daniel and God's people experienced a massive cultural shift, much more dramatic and sudden than even our own. They went from being uh, their own nation, fully under God, the norm was to follow God and to worship God, to being taken captive by the Babylonians. Babylonians, as we've studied throughout the book of Daniel, took the best and the brightest from Judah and they took them into exile back to Babylon. This included Daniel and his friends. So Daniel uh, and God's people said goodbye to living in Judah, a, a land operated fully under God's principles with the temple there to worship God freely. And they were forced to live in pagan, sinful Babylon, a land littered with other gods and idols and deities, a land rampant 
with immorality. See, Daniel can relate with us. That's part of the purpose why we've studied the book of Daniel, because Daniel displays for us how to be courageously faithful to God without compromising in one's convictions, how to wisely draw lines in the sand. Daniel has shown us what it looks like to be in the world, but not of the world, how to avoid retreating from the world and isolating yourself from the world while also refusing to receive and adopt everything that the world has to offer. See, Daniel showed us what it looks like to be an engaged alien, an exile whose primary allegiance is to King Jesus while also being active and engaged in this world. Uh, If you're like me, this study over the last three months has been enormously helpful to know what it looks like to be an exile, both biblically and on a daily basis. And so as we look to conclude our study this morning, uh, what I want us to look at is these last couple of verses in Daniel chapter 6, because each of these verses actually echoes a larger theme that we've seen throughout the book of Daniel. And we've covered so much ground over these, uh, these first six chapters of Daniel. I just want us to spend today looking at some of the main takeaways uh, that God's word has for us in these six chapters. So here's the first main takeaway uh, that I, that I want to highlight for us uh, in these first six chapters is that the book of Daniel really calls us to live with fearless courage and wise convictions. If you look at verse 25, uh, King Darius uh, is making an important announcement. This is on the heels of, of the whole Daniel and the lion's den uh, scene here. And what his announcement includes is a decree to all peoples, all languages, and all nations. And his decree is one in which that's centered on calling everybody to fear and revere Daniel's God. That's an interesting way of putting it. He says, Daniel's God, not the Hebrews' God, not the God of Israel, not Yahweh. He says, Daniel's God. And I think he says that because of the way that Daniel lived with fearless courage and with wise convictions that Daniel made it out to be such a, a, a statement about who God is that King Darius attributes the God of Israel to being Daniel's God. Again, this is on the heels of, of the whole Daniel and the lion's den scene where Daniel drew a line in the sand and said, I will not cross it. I will not compromise. As a result, he was thrown into the lion's den and, Dan, uh, and God delivered him from the lion's den. Now, there are several examples uh, of fearless courage throughout the book of Daniel. If you remember way back in the beginning, in chapter 1, we saw that the young teenage Daniel drew a line in the sand uh, uh, in front of the powerful king Nebuchadnezzar. If you remember, in chapter 1, King Nebuchadnezzar took the best and the brightest, including Daniel and his friends, and he had this indoctrination program of three years The goal of this indoctrination program was to brainwash these young Hebrews so they would compromise in their values, in their convictions, and in their principles. That Daniel and his friends were a long way from home. They were 900 miles away from Judah. And so this new environment in Babylon would have been a shell-shocking experience for them. A new environment filled with new temptations, new ideologies, new religions to worship. 
They were away from their, their routine, uh, this familiar structure. There was no uh, religious environment to reinforce their beliefs, no family, no temple to worship God in. And if you remember, King Nebuchadnezzar had four steps uh, to this indoctrination program. Step number one was to relocate them, right? Get them away from Judah, away from the temple, bring them to Babylon, expose them to our gods here. The second step was to re-educate them, right? Give them a thorough understanding of everything in the world, but including giving them a thorough understanding of the Babylonian gods. And then thirdly, the third step was to rename them. Let's get their names, the Hebrew names off of Daniel and his friends and give them names related to the Babylonian gods. Now, these first three steps, Daniel was okay with. It wasn't his preference, but that's not where he drew the line in the sand. It's so interesting. He drew the line in the sand with the fourth step in the indoctrination program. The fourth step was to try to remoralize them that King Nebuchadnezzar tried to force them uh, to eat food that would go against the clear dietary restrictions in the Old Testament. This is food that would have been first sacrificed and offered to the Babylonian gods. Daniel said, this is where I draw the line in the sand. And what Daniel did, he didn't just draw the line in the sand, but he actually offered to eat only uh, uh, vegetables and drink water for 10 days. And he said, let's see who is stronger. Let's see who looks better after that 10-day period. And of course, we know that Daniel and his friends looked healthier. They looked stronger. They had uh, fatter flesh than those that ate the king's food. Now, that's a miracle, right? That's a work of God. That does not happen. If you had vegetables and water for 10 days, you would lose weight. You would look more unhealthy uh, than, uh, than otherwise, and we highlighted the fact that this is the first miracle in the book of Daniel, but it's often overlooked. We tend to think of uh, God rescuing uh, Daniel from the lion's den as a miracle, or the fiery furnace, or you know, God writing uh, on the wall with King Belshazzar, or Daniel interpreting all these dreams as, as clear evidence of God being at work. We often overlook chapter one and this miracle that God performed in the life of Daniel and his friends. But this was significant. It was significant because the Babylonians had this program. So at the end of it, they would give praise and worship to the Babylonian gods because each of these steps was directly connected to pagan worship. Well, Daniel refusing to do that fourth step and yet looking healthier and stronger forced them to consider giving worship to someone besides the Babylonian gods, namely the God of Israel. And so Daniel here in chapter one displays fearless courage and wise convictions that he refused to draw unnecessary lines in the sand, over, uh, drawing over lines in the sand, if you will, and he also avoided not drawing lines at all. He drew the right lines based on biblically saturated convictions. And I think he challenged us that we must do the same. Now, we saw other clear examples of fearless courage and wise convictions from Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in chapter 3 that King Nebuchadnezzar built this enormous golden statue, uh, a statue likely after his own image, and he demanded that all bow down and worship it. 
Well, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego drew a line in the sand. They refused to do this. And so they were thrown into the fiery furnace. Now, we couldn't help ourselves. We, we put ourselves in their shoes, don't we? And we asked the question, would we have done the same thing? You can even consider if in our country, a law was passed that put us in a similar situation where we were forced to bow down and worship the president or the United States of America, of America. And if we refused, you'd be thrown into the fiery furnace. What would you do? If there was an image of the president or America of some sort, and you were demanded to worship that image, and if not, you'll be put to death, what would you do? Wonder if some of us would refuse and say, no, I worship the one true living God. Or if others of us would maybe compromise. If some of us would start to justify and think, well, I'll just physically bend my knee, but in my heart, I'll still worship God. Or maybe some of us would think, well, everyone else is doing it. This must be right. This must be okay. Right? But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they, they didn't compromise. They drew a line in the sand with fearless courage. And as a result, they were thrown into the fiery furnace. Now, we were challenged by their example because they did not know for sure that God was going to deliver them. They were unsure of that. They were just walking in obedience, but they didn't know if God was going to save them. If you remember chapter 3, verse 18, this, this declaration of faith uh, was so powerful where they tell the king, our God is able to deliver us, but if not... But if not, we will not worship that golden image. They didn't know if God was going to save them. See, their faith is such a challenge for us because their faith was not dependent on having the right circumstances. It was dependent on the changeless, constant character of God who is always trustworthy. See, faith is not just believing despite the evidence Faith is believing despite the consequences. Faith is not just believing that God will do something. It's believing that God can do all things, but leaving it up to him whether or not he will and trusting him nonetheless. So I think what they showed us is that the real question for us is can we, will we trust God in the midst of uncertainty? Trusting God when it's all rainbows and sunshine and smiles is one thing, but trusting God in the midst of a storm, in the midst of uncertainty is something else. Will we trust God when the future is unknown? That when God does not do something that we know he can do, whether it's to fix something or heal something or redeem something or save something, if he refuses to do that, will we still trust in God? See, that's the question for us as we look at Daniel. For us, as we pray to God, as we pour out our hearts before him, what if he does not answer our prayers in the way that we know he can, in the way that we expect, in the way that we desire? Will we still trust in God? Will we, like these three Hebrews, still say, God, I know that you're able, but if not, 
I will still trust in you. See, we're reminded of a courageous obedience to God in, includes chapter 3, verse 18, makes room for that. I think that type of faith releases the clutch that our fingers have around our control, our expectations, and our own plans. To step out into the unknown future, the uncertainty, with a rock-solid trust that God is with us. Well, that's probably my favorite story in all of Daniel, if I could show my cards, greatly challenged by chapter 3. But we could also highlight other examples of fearless courage. Uh, Daniel interpreting King Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2 with literally his life on the line. Or Daniel's boldness in confronting King Belshazzar in chapter 5. And of course, who can forget Daniel in the lion's den in chapter 6? Look, I think Daniel and his friends, their example of fearless courage, I think confronts us with the reality that true faith in God involves a cost. It involves sacrifice. It involves giving up our own comfort at times, our own ease, giving up our own time, our own resources, giving up pleasures of this world. And so you have to ask yourself the question, if your faith in God, if the way that you're following God doesn't involve any type of cost, any type of sacrifice, is it true faith? Is it biblical faith? Or is it convenient faith? There's a massive difference between convenient faith and costly faith, true faith in God. What have you given up in order to be a Christian? Look, Daniel and his friends have taught us that we need a God-sized confidence in a post-Christian world. That fearless courage, wise convictions only exist to the degree in which you trust in God. This takes us to the second, I think, main takeaway in the book of Daniel is a call to trust in a sovereign God who rules over all and whose dominion has no end. Look, everyone, everyone wants to be a Daniel, but Daniel was only Daniel because he trusted in a God who rules over all and whose dominion has no end. I think this is in fact what King Darius is declaring in verse 26. He says in this decree, not only to fear God, but to fear him because, verse 26, he is the living God, enduring forever, his kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. I think perhaps this might be the greatest theme in all of Daniel. It is to see God as endlessly sovereign, all-powerful, ruling and reigning as the king of kings whose dominion is an everlasting dominion. Daniel's covered with examples of this, of painting God in this way. You get to chapter 2, uh, verse 20 and 21. It says, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. Or chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Chapter 4, verse 25, this is uh, in light of Nebuchadnezzar being turned into that of an animal. It says, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, 
and gives it to whom he will. Chapter 4, verses 34 through 35. This is a Nebuchadnezzar declaring these truths about God. It says, I bless the Most High and praise and honor him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay, can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? In chapter 7, we didn't get to this, but it says, unto him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. It's all over the place. We see this even in, in the crazy dream in chapter two. Nebuchadnezzar had multiple dreams, but chapter two, he had this dream of, of this enormous statue, this, this, this image. And this statue had different elements to it, representing different kingdoms, different empires throughout history. And then you had this stone or this rock that was thrown into the statue and the statue broke into all these different pieces and the wind came and, and blew away all those pieces so as to say that all these kingdoms, all these empires will not last forever and they will be eventually forgotten. And we saw in chapter two how this stone represents generally the kingdom of God, but more specifically the king of the kingdom, Jesus Christ, who's the rock of ages. And through this dream in chapter two, we learned God's kingdom is eternal, it will never be destroyed, but will endure for all time. Chapter 4, verse 3 says, How great are his signs and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. His dominion is from generation to generation. Man, we, we considered that reality. The fact that God's kingdom has no expiration date. There is no future kingdom that will come that will rise up and overtake God and his kingdom. Think about that for a moment. There's no future uprising, no future rebellion, no future coup that will overtake God. There's one king and one kingdom forevermore. Now, why? It's because he's the victorious one. He is the stone that crashes into the statue and breaks it into a million pieces. That God, through Jesus and what he has accomplished, is the victorious one. This theme, again, is echoed. Chapter 7, verse 14. And to him was given glory and dominion and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. I think this might be the primary theme that our sovereign God controls every event in this world, judging and protecting individuals as well as world empires until he establishes his perfect kingdom on the earth. Look, nothing, nothing that happens surprises our all-seeing, all-knowing, all-powerful God. And that is true both generally and globally, but also specifically and personally over every detail of your life. God is sovereign and God is in control. 
Remember, Daniel was addressing some of the Israelites who were suffering in exile. And so his chief goal here is to encourage and comfort them with this truth, with this reality, that despite the appearances being contrary, God is still sovereign. God is still in control. We saw this theme from the very beginning in chapter one, right? We we noted three different times it says that God gave, God gave, God gave. Chapter one, verse two, God gave his people into the hands of the Babylonians. It was God's sovereign work behind the scenes. Chapter one, verse nine, God gave Daniel favor uh, in front of the eunuch for him to be able to eat the vegetables and drink the water for 10 days. Chapter one, verse 17, God gave Daniel and his friends understanding Daniel the ability to interpret dreams. God's sovereignty was orchestrating all of those events, even from chapter one. But we also saw the sovereignty of God deliver his faithful children from the fiery furnace and the lions in chapter three and chapter six. We saw God's sovereign power give earthly kingdoms to whomever he wills, such as prideful King Nebuchadnezzar, changing him into that of an animal, or ripping the kingdom away from the hard-hearted King Belshazzar in chapters four and five. Or chapter two, the dream. We see God's sovereign power replacing all human kingdoms with his everlasting kingdom that will come in the future. See, God's sovereign power is driving all of these realities throughout the book of Daniel. Now, why is that so important? Why is that important for us to see and for us to know and for us to believe? It's because seeing God in this way, in this light, fosters an unshakable trust in God no matter what happens in our lives, no matter the circumstances. Seeing God as he truly is fuels and creates a trust in God no matter what happens. See, perhaps the reason why some lack having a fearless and courageous trust in God, a deep trust in God, is because they don't see him in this way. They don't see him as the sovereign ruler, the one who's in control of every detail in the universe. Perhaps some just see God as this loving cosmic teddy bear who's up there and and when bad things happen, he's going to maybe comfort you, but he's not really in control of all things. Look, church, that view of God is A, not biblical, and B, is powerless to sustain you when hard things happen. See, when we are faced with significant trials, not if, but when, like a fiery furnace, like a lion's den, what we need the most, not what we want the most, what we need the most is not to be ripped out from that trial, but it's for us to see God as he truly is so that we can deeply trust him no matter what. See, this is what Daniel has taught us. Daniel has taught us that when the fiery trials come, as 1 Peter 2 says, we as Christians, we are not delivered from them. We are delivered through them. We are not miraculously protected from suffering and from trials, but what we are promised is a sovereign, all-powerful God who promises to walk alongside of us in the midst of hardship and suffering, that God wants to do a work in us, and he uses the hardship 
in order to chip away at our sin and conform us into the image of Jesus. Look, unfortunately, comfortable times, times of ease, when, when things are going as it should, do not produce things of eternal value in our lives. It's when we walk through the fiery furnace. It's when we walk through a lion's den where we experience growth and transformation like never before. See, Daniel reinforces the hard reality, but the freeing reality that life is not about me. Life is not about my comfort, about my ease, about my happiness. God does not exist to give you what you want. He does not exist to give you happiness, ease, and comfort. God exists primarily for his glory, and he gives you what you need. He sovereignly uses and orchestrates hardship, pressures from this world to produce something of eternal value in your life. And Daniel calls us to trust in the true hero of the story. It's not Daniel. It's not you. It's not me. It's God. That God alone reigns supreme, sovereign over all. Well, this takes us to the last major theme that we've seen throughout the book of Daniel. I think the book of Daniel calls us to stand in awe of God's mighty acts of powerful deliverance. King Darius declares this truth in verse 27. He says, he referring to God delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. It's amazing, this pagan king holds up in high esteem God's ability to deliver, to rescue, and to save, that he and he alone has the power to do so. Again, we've seen this theme throughout the whole book. Chapter one, God delivered Daniel from the consequences of, eat, of not eating the king's food by miraculously making him stronger despite only eating vegetables and water. God delivered Daniel, chapter two, from the irrational death sentence given by King Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, God delivered Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as we've mentioned, from the fiery furnace in chapter three. God delivered Daniel from the lion's den in chapter six. Time and time again, we see God's powerful hand of deliverance throughout the book of Daniel. This is one of the most important takeaways, to see God as the ultimate deliverer, that this is what God does. This is who God is, not just in the book of Daniel, but all throughout the Bible, you see this theme of painting the picture that God will deliver, God will rescue, God will save his people. Just to give you a couple of examples, you see this God delivering his people from the hand of Pharaoh, the, the, the power of Egypt through the 10 plagues and the parting of the Red Sea. See God saving his people from Goliath, from the hands of the Philistines. You see God delivering the prophet Elijah from the hands of the evil queen Jezebel. Time and time again, I could go on and on about God delivering, God rescuing, God saving his people. But church, ultimately, and perhaps most importantly, the best example of God delivering his people is in and through Jesus Christ. That through Jesus, God has made a way 
for us to be delivered from the bondage of sin, the clutches of death, the, the oppressive rule of Satan. And he did so not by sending a prophet like Daniel, not by sending one who looks like an angel, but he did so by sending his one and only son, Jesus Christ. He came 2,000 years ago to die the death that we should have. He, he took this death sentence, this penalty that was supposed to be for us because of our sin, our disobedience. And Jesus took our place in order to deliver us and free us from the consequences of our sin. That Jesus is the faithful one. He is the savior. He is the redeemer. He is the ultimate deliverer. And so the book of Daniel, I think ultimately points forward to how much better Jesus actually is. That yes, it is incredible to be delivered and saved from a fiery furnace. It is incredible to be delivered from the lion's den. But how much better is it to be delivered from eternal torments, eternal condemnation, eternal separation from God? And because of Jesus, we have an opportunity to be saved, delivered, and rescued from something much more terrifying than a fiery furnace or a lion's den. A furnace that is hotter than 1,800 degrees. A den that is far more terrifying than one filled with hungry lions. That what Jesus has accomplished for us is that he has delivered us from the eternal furnace of hell, the eternal den of destruction in hell, separated from God forever and ever. He's made a way when there was no way. He made it possible because of his death and his resurrection for anyone who trusts in Jesus alone for their salvation. God has made a way for them to be saved and delivered for all of eternity. And even this book, 600 years before Jesus even came, points forward to how Jesus is the ultimate deliverer and rescuer. Well, as we close this morning, we close out our study in Daniel. I wanted to read a, a couple of lines from one of the greatest hymns ever written. Martin Luther in the 1500s writ, uh, wrote a hymn called A Mighty Fortress. And I was struck by how these lyrics just echo some of these themes that we've seen throughout Daniel. It says, and though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who, is, who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. God is truly our mighty fortress, a bulwark never failing. Let's pray together. God, we give you praise and thanks for your word. We thank you for how powerful it is. God, this book is unlike any other book. Lord, it has the ability to 
Help us to look up at the eternal, reigning, glorious God. And Lord, that is exactly what we need. Help us, O God, to see you as you rightly are, a God who is ruling and reigning, whose power is forevermore. God, I pray for those who are here today who are going through hardship and suffering or going through a time of uncertainty. Lord, I pray that you would remind them of these truths, the truths that you are with them, that you are for them, that you are sovereign and in control, that nothing catches you off guard. Lord, we pray for grace. We pray for your hand to strengthen and to sustain us, that we might be a people who walk courageously and fearlessly, refusing to compromise. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.